0: Welcome to the Sinica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, hosting solo this week as Jeremy Goldcorn. is off on Antipodean Adventures. I believe he's in New Zealand right now. Happy Chinese New Year to all of you. Today, we're joined for the first time by Simon Montlake, Bureau Chief for Forbes in Beijing. Simon was previously stationed in Bangkok and has been reporting out of Beijing now for what, a couple of years? I've been here nearly a year now, Kaiser. so okay. uh, Still, still finding my feet. <laughs> well, doing some excellent business writing. So, welcome to Sinica, Simon, and I look forward to having you on again. Uh, we are also joined after a prolonged cat allergy-related absence by the one, the only Bill Bishop, the man behind the indispensable cynicism newsletter to which I trust all of our listeners subscribe and, just as importantly, contribute.
1: Welcome back, Bill. Thanks. It's nice to be back after about 18 months.
0: (laughs) Oh my God, it's been a long time. So let me remind listeners very quickly that they can join in the conversation on our podcast page and, of course, on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast, all one word. So we're going to focus today on a couple of topics both tied to the theme of corporate skullduggery or at least alleged skullduggery here in China. Last week, During the Chinese New Year holiday, Simon published an in-depth piece about Caterpillar's debacle of a deal which shocked shareholders and China watchers when the American equipment company announced a $580 million write-down for an acquisition it made in November 2011 of a Chinese um, mining equipment manufacturer called Sui from a holding company called ERA Holdings. Uh, We are going to be looking at what went wrong with that deal and the pitfalls that it illustrates. But first, let's talk a bit about another big story that made a splash last weekend when the Financial Times ran a long piece headlined Death in Singapore, co-bylined by Raymond Bonner and Christine Spolar. The story is about the mysterious death in June of last year of Shane Todd, a young American engineer. Todd had been working for Singapore's Institute of Microelectronics, IME, a uh, research institute under A*STAR, which is Singapore's Advanced uh, Agency, I'm sorry, for Science, Technology and Advanced Research. And uh, his work involved gallium nitride, a material for use in semiconductors that's able to withstand high power levels and very high temperatures and as such has potential military applications in addition to its civilian uses. So uh, also involved in this project apparently was the Shenzhen-based Chinese telecoms networking giant Huawei, and uh, that's why we were talking about it today on Seneca. Huawei, by the way, has told Reuters recently that although it was approached about cooperation on gallium nitride by IME, it had declined and did no work with Star or IME on this. So Shane Todd, who I think was 31, was found hanging in his apartment in Singapore, and his parents, who arrived about 48 hours after notification of his death, were uh, naturally very upset by the death of their son, whom they had no reason to believe was at risk for suicide. So what were the circumstances of the death of young Mr. Todd that prompted the FT to take the Todd family's allegations of foul play so seriously? Bill, you've been following this story, haven't you?
1: Only what I read in the FT and then the Reuters follow-up. Uh, it sounds like the this, when the family got to the apartment, uh, the scene was not as it had been described by the police report, uh, and strangely, there was a portable hard drive left that they took. They thought it was, a, I guess, a speaker, and then they discovered all sorts of files on it, which turned out to be uh, potentially very interesting, or certainly were, uh, formed, I think, a big part of the uh, FD's story
0: so were, were you guys kind of persuaded that there may have been foul play involved at least in, enough to elicit further investigation
2: i was definitely persuaded that the singapore police had not made a convincing case to the family of what happened yeah um where you take it from there it's, it's hard to say i i wasn't entirely clear on on what his work was and quite how sensitive it was um i mean one thing that struck me is that The Singapore government has a very close cooperation with the American government. I mean, there's military allies, sharing intelligence, sharing many things over the years. Um, I would be surprised if a Singaporean government agency was involved in something which uh, um, would really have, as the story alleged, um, you know, upset the American authorities or broken any export controls. That bit was a little confusing to me. And also the role of Huawei. I mean, that's, they've they've now said they weren't doing anything of of the sort. So... Those are the sort of strands which make you wonder what's going on. Otherwise, you just have sort of a botched police investigation of a, of a tragic suicide.
0: Right. I mean, that seems like a simple, um, you know, that, that it was a uh, a suicide that they treated rather routinely and were then, you know, uh, less apt to to do a very, very thorough job and maybe a sloppy police report. I mean, you, you, I have sort of an Occam's razor I like to apply where if it's between sort of incompetence and conspiracy, go with incompetence. but. I mean it, it also this whole business of Lamont's suicide I mean he did have a history of depression and anxiety he and saw
1: sh- like a shrink once and got Prozac right I mean if, if that's a cause for suicide then most people are probably going to Well the, risk. The, the,
0: there was there was there were you know uh, besides those th- that incident there were there were uh, more recent bouts of depression that he had suffered closer to the time of his suicide but I mean isn't it plausible uh, when I read that I mean it looked like you know um, a, a, to me, you know, this guy could have been plagued by anxiety and depression. He hated his job, as he made pretty clear to his friends and his girlfriend. Uh, he was nagged by doubts, and and suddenly this this company Huawei, he keeps you know, reading about in the news in connection with dodgy activities. Uh, it made have sort of made him, you know, represent more paranoid intimations to his friends and coworkers and his family, and then maybe make have a more sinister interpretation.
1: Well, of, I think I mean one thing I would just say I mean. We, you know, Simon made this point before the podcast started, which is, you know, the Financial Times has a lot to lose in Singapore by um, taking on a very sensitive subject and misreporting it. I mean, we've got to remember the Financial Times is one of the, you know, one of the premier journalistic organizations in the world. They have very high standards. The two reporters who who, who worked on the story uh, are quite experienced, have a long history, very good reputations. And so, uh, I mean, for the FT to, to devote three pages, even, the, you know, the weekend, yeah, they they obviously were convinced that something else was going on.
0: But and Reuters, these are not
1: these are not naives.
0: Reuters, who had the story uh, weeks after, and they were approached by the family. They 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 had it immediately after the young man's suicide. Uh, let me let me read from the piece that followed on the FTs. It said Reuters reviewed evidence the family presented supporting its theory a few weeks after his death, including emails, other documents, and photographs. Interviews with the family, colleagues, and friends revealed conflicting views on Todd's state of mind before his death, the nature of his work, and how he died. Colleagues said that he was increasingly depressed in his last few months, but said that his concerns appeared to center on a sense of failure about his work and an ambivalence about returning to the United States. Researchers in unrelated fields have also questioned how... If his family was so sensitive, he was able to take home computer files from his office. His family retrieved a hard drive, which included work files in his flat. Come
1: on. Alder James took, 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 computer, took documents from the CIA. The fact that he took computer files out of the office does not in any way evidence that what he was doing wasn't sensitive. Okay. I mean, Reuters could be right. You have to remember, though, that, that Reuters and the FT, there is no love lost between the two. And Reuters, as, as most rival news organizations, would love nothing more than to have the FT fall on its face on this story. I'll let you address that.
2: Well, I, I guess Reuters also has an awful lot at stake in Singapore. It's their regional uh, base. They have a huge um, editing desk there. They have all the financial data services. Um, you know, all, all of that goes with the territory. But then again, as we've seen with Bloomberg's work um, here in Hong Kong, you know, that that's also can be your strength in terms of pulling all the data together. So I, I personally have no doubt that Reuters took a look at the story and were interested enough to to dig deeper and perhaps, you know, in a, in, a, in a world of un, infinite resources, they might have put someone on the job and, and kept at it. But, I mean, you've got to prioritize. I mean, this this was uh, – I mean, Ray Bonner is a former New York Times guy. He was in Jakarta. We overlapped briefly. Um, you know, he's done reporting on he's
1: this broken This what he stories. does, right? He's an investigative yeah. journalist. He, he, in Central
2: America, in Southeast Asia, in, in, in Pakistan, in different places. So, I mean, he's clearly sort of gone away and pulled at the strings and kept going at this. And the FT has been interested enough to, 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 to bring in their investigation editor and, and put it together. Um, like I said, I, I thought it was a really fascinating, interesting story. I'm just not quite clear on on the skullduggery part of the right. story. I, I'm I'm convinced that the Singapore government, Singapore police has not adequately explained what happened to their son and they have every reason to keep uh keep asking for for, right. for those for those for that to be resolved. But um, I
1: mean I certainly read it and you you know it, it's not at least it doesn't seem it's not written in black and white that this this you know poor guy, this tragedy, he was you know he was murdered by nefarious agents of a hostile a foreign government hostile to the U.S. But you certainly could Read come read the story and come with that implication that okay this guy was off by, you know Huawei, you know Huawei or something related to Huawei's work which I, I think <laughs> is is a stretch it's right? a stretch right you know I, I mean I, I think that that would that would be you know Huawei gets bad press and but that's a little bit beyond the pale I mean just I mean nothing's impossible right but put, putting, putting on an a- amateur stress.
0: psychiatrist's hat here I mean it's been noted that the guy had actually quit his job. He had found a, a good job back home in the States. He was actually packing for his departure at the time of his death. I mean, I've actually heard of many cases where somebody who's suffering from depression believes that there's an external cause, whether it's, you know, a stressful relationship, a, a job, what have you. And on finding him or herself clear of that situation, you discover that the depression actually persists. You realize that, you know, that it may be something clinical, something chemical, something, you know in um, you know, more physiological, and that realization—the uh, the persistence of the depression—is enough to send you over the edge. So, I well, mean, I, I well, there are other
1: stuff though, right? I mean, there were there were, again. It was a little, uh, you know, the FT didn't actually come out and make any specific conclusions, but weren't there on that external hard drive they discovered there were. You know, they were able to find activity on the, in, the, in the disc, but after he had supposedly, you know, after his time of death, and there It'd was been, sort of... Yeah,
2: it looked like someone it, might
0: Someone
1: have else had been on it. that hard drive.
0: And, and yet they left it.
1: Which, which is, is, again, and it was sitting there, and they, you know, but then the family said they thought it was a speaker. Right. Do you, right.
0: There was actually a photograph of the thing. Did the thing look like a speaker yeah. to you? So, no,
1: it's a very strange, very strange story. And ultimately, I mean, it's a tragedy for his, him and his family. Right, so I mean, and where does it end? It's probably one of those, just sort of, you know, I mean, what's going to happen,
2: right? Well, the Singapore government's. I thought the Singapore response was, in there's going to be a, 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 an inquest, inquest in March. Right. So, um, you know, there'll there'll be renewed interest in that. Um, what I thought was interesting was that the family clearly tried to get the uh, uh, the FBI, the US embassy mm-hmm. involved in the they in the case, and yeah. they provided consulate uh, assistance, and and they, the ambassador actually met with the family, but. It's not the FBI's, doesn't seem to be like top of their to-do list. But then that's hard to know, right? They they could very well take a strong interest in this issue about uh, sensitive sensitive technology being passed on, um, but they're not likely to come out and say that. So there could be a whole other backstory there that we don't know about and that couldn't really be stood
1: up for this piece.
0: Okay, Bill, you mentioned that there was an Asia Times Online piece about this. Well, Asia, I, I haven't f- gotten it. Sentinel. Asia, I'm sorry, but Asia Who's
1: behind that? It's former, like, Farsi, Phil, Phil Boring guys, and, are, and, Yeah. Wall Street Journal, guy? who who is behind yeah, it? Yeah,
2: I think it's sort of a Hong Kong group of veteran Hong Kong guys from from various papers, like and Economic Review and a couple of others. Right. I,
1: I read it quickly, but it basically it took Reuters to task for for it basically accuses Reuters of of um, cowardice because they said they had the story, they sat on it, and they sat on it because they were afraid of. Uh, upsetting the Singapore government. Oh, right. But that's, I mean, that's what that's, it says. I, you know, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very. I mean, I think these are very, you know, veteran Asia journalists who probably have their share of scars from working in the region and maybe working in Singapore. And you know, I mean. I, I have no idea. This is just what's in the media. So this, this piece is out there. You read it, right? And yeah. I mean, look, Singapore is famously litigious against
2: its opponents. Um, various news organizations, including some I've worked for in the past, have been affected by this. I'm talking about, you know, uh, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal. I mean, they, they really do uh, um, go after you and they go after you in terms of your circulation, your advertising and everything. And it's usually about the Lee family. I mean, that's what it all comes down to. It's very much a, a family affair. But, um, you know, um, saying things about Singapore they don't like does get you in trouble. So news organizations definitely think twice about that. But, I mean, a, a, as, we, as we know, the FT has a lot at stake in, in Singapore as well. As, as a financial newspaper and a financial yeah. provider of information, someone like Singapore in this region is is a huge hub. So um, I don't know. I don't really take that too seriously. I mean, the family could well have talked to lots of different journalists and different people trying to get
1: their right. attention. I, I understand that. That often happens.
0: Okay, well, I'm I'm not sure there's much more light we can shed
1: on this ourselves. So. Has it been covered on the Chinese media? Have we has it pick, been picked up anywhere?
0: I have I haven't seen it. I wonder if it's been. But I haven't looked hard it, either because
1: I think over the weekend for two or three days, it, past weekend it was it was the most read story on the Financial Times website. So I wonder if actually they've translated onto the FT Chinese Chinese site. That would be interesting.
0: Hmm. Oh, we'll have to look for it, and if we do find it, we'll make sure to put a link on it. Uh, so let's move on to to the other story for today. Um, so. Simon, you, you've written a, uh, an in-depth piece about uh, what happened with Caterpillar. At the center of the, the deal gone wrong is a, a former uh, chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce here in, in, in China, Emery Williams, who I think is known to a lot of people here in Beijing. Uh, you describe him in your piece as a pillar of the expat community here in Beijing, someone with very extensive experience in China, uh, another Mr. China, if you will. Uh, the actual Mr. China is actually quoted in your piece. <laughs> um, Now, I should be clear that he has been accused of no wrongdoing here, as you make clear in your piece, not by Caterpillar. Um, And his reputation may have taken something of a hit, what with the Chinese papers describing this as Americans
2: cheating Americans. But tell us about Emery Williams and and about ERA Holdings, Simon. Well, okay. Emery Williams' story starts in China in the 1990s. And he, he tried a few different businesses. He was into construction materials. Um... What he discovered in the early 2000s is that um, mining mining equipment uh, and heavy equipment in general was sort of opening up to foreign investors. And it is a Mr. China story, because if you remember the original uh, Mr. China narrative, it is we have rusty state-owned enterprises. You have foreign capital know-how. Let's put this together and we'll all get rich. Um, this is the same story that with, with this equipment. He, he found these um, state companies... That wanted to either spin off or privatize the, these uh, factories. He came in with the with a Chinese partner and provided the the, the foreign capital, and the marketing know how and all the rest of it. So it t- it looked like an amazing deal. The guy had taken these these companies, um, turned them into something quite quite strong. And along came the multinational with the big checkbook, and this was the big payout. I mean, it, it's it's the it's the Mr. China story. It's a big success. Um, you know, the question you have to ask with all these allegations is uh you know as chairman of the board of a company how much do you really know about what goes on on an operational level in, in a chinese operation In a so yeah,
0: we, before we get to that i mean what was the crux of what actually went wrong uh, what, what what was missing uh you know how are the books cooked in this in this case
2: Books were cooked, uh, according to uh, Caterpillar, um, and also, I should add, my colleague in Detroit, uh, Joanne, Joanne Muller, she did a lot of the reporting on the Caterpillar side. But we know from their public statements, as well as what we, we picked up from them, is that, you know, they say they found a multi-year fraud, that the, the revenues have been overstated for years, there were false receipts, there were, you know, different sets of books, all to make it look like the company was, uh, was making more money than it was, which, of course, if you're trying to sell a company, is very convenient. Of course. So, I mean, you suggest that there are actually
0: three possible scenarios here. I mean, if I may. First, that Williams and his partners were in on it. Um, second, that they were, you know, essentially bamboozled, uh, that that they, they, they didn't know what was going on. They were sort of, you know, uh, uh, cheated and they had actually uh, no idea. They were clueless about this. And uh, they were dealing essentially in good faith with Caterpillar's management about what they believed was a solid operation. And the third option was that they may have suspected something was amiss but had no idea of how to sort the shit out. I mean, so in the end, where did you lay
2: your bet? Probably on the last one, I guess. Um, it, it's hard for me to believe that they were not aware of, of, of a fraud on this scale. Now, that, that is assuming that Caterpillar hasn't, you know, uh, blown up something bigger than it was. I mean, if it's such an amazing fraud, they have to write off most of the value of the deal, basically saying this company is worth, you know, only a um, third of what it was. Less than a less third, than that, which right, is right. which is really down to sort of the, the land, the factory and some machines out the back. I mean, you're, you're, you're almost writing it off as a going concern and, and who knows how, how well it'll do in the future. But I mean, for a write-off that big, uh, I find it hard to imagine that, that these directors didn't know that something was amiss. I mean, this company did have some... Red flags, as they say, in in the back in the backdrop to this.
1: Um, well, it was actually re- it was a reverse merge. It was a re- it was like a reverse merger IPO in Hong Kong. Yeah, that's correct. But and it never had a you know had didn't have a first tier accounting firm auditing its books, and it didn't you know it, it was one of these like a RTO. You know that's that's where you've seen a lot of the fraud in the the Chinese firms that listed in the U.S. Sure, through these reverse, and this one did the similar move. On Hong Kong doesn't mean all reverse merger IPOs are frauds, but a high percentage of them have turned out to be. So, you, and then no, before that, the last two core. I mean, you reported right that they actually um, during the, the negotiations that the the top management of, of ERA had to fly to Caterpillar headquarters to explain why they had to issue two profit warnings because the financials were. Is that you or was that the FT? Maybe that was... The FT had that detail. I mean yeah. – Because their financials were deteriorating and they had you – know, when you go back now and you look at the actual um, financial results for this company, what Caterpillar paid was absurd mm-hmm. based on – and this was a public well, company. What kind of a multiple are we talking it's about? Just, it's, it was absurd, right? So, so the, the first reaction now is, wow, what, why on earth did they feel they had to pay so much money for this company that was clearly in trouble? Based on what they were reporting. I mean, it was
0: in trouble to the time mean, where, in fact, before the deal went through, they actually secured a $50 million loan. Is that correct, Simon?
2: Uh, bill itself. Lent money to the company That's what meant, because man. they were in such trouble. Well, they they had piles of receivables. They you know they were yeah. waiting to get paid. They were buying yeah. steel to make the machines. No, they this, they, were, they were
1: in the middle of the Chinese economy where you know everybody was everybody was stiffing everybody else last year, right? And they may still triangular debt. But but I mean I, again, I'm not sure if you reported this or it was a journal or, or or the FT. But there was also the um, the Caterpillar executive who oversaw the the actual acquisition. Um, he uh, left the company the day before, the week before the um, announcement of this this write down, discovery of the fraud. Right? Nobody believes, Same day. Same day. So yeah. yeah, nobody believes this was this was a. a has, has anyone has anyone talked to him? I'm sure he's not talking to anybody. We tried to get to yeah. him, and uh, right. He, but 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 he also apparently he had been previously at Bucyrus or Bucyrus. Bucyrus, this Milwaukee company, company that at the time had mm. wanted to buy Era. And then Caterpillar bought Basiris, right? And then he brought it. He came over, and then he put, continued to push this deal through to um, you know to have Caterpillar buy it. And so you know the the, the Caterpillar's state their public statements about the what they discovered were very. I mean, you can tell. I mean, I, you know, I used to be you know an officer of a public company. I mean, you know how you draft these statements. I mean, they, they're very clear. They don't accuse uh, uh, the the Rupoir or the what's his name John Lee in English or what, or or Emery Williams. But, you know, they, 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 so far they've only fired the Chinese, some Chinese executives in the, uh, the Henan subsidiary. Was it suwei or— Siwei, yes, that's Sui, right. Yeah. but But they also are—the language in the release is very clear that their investigation is not done, and they're continuing to look, and they're going to pursue all options. And, you know, there, there's a follow-on payment that they need to make to, in April— and I would be highly—I mean—they're going to do any, everything they can to, to not avoid make that having payment. to make
2: that. Right. Well, it could even go further than that. I, I talked to a few um, yeah, they were lawyers. To claw back they they, they could it's... actually uh, try and get back money that they paid Absolutely. out, saying it was under fraudulent circumstances, Absolutely. misrepresented by the board. There's a lot. Like, I mean, yeah. think about how many lawyers Caterpillar has.
1: No, and, and so and so. This is this. It's going to be very interesting. And if this, it'll be actually quite fascinating if this gets litigated in the U.S. Because then a bunch of stuff will come out, in the uh, maybe Hong Kong too. I don't know, Hong Kong courts work, but you'll start seeing a lot of stuff get revealed. I mean, I think the, the you know, what's interesting, too, right now is you probably heard from them. I've certainly gotten emails from some folks who are short, an, a U.S.-listed company called Joy Global, mm-hmm. which acquired, mm-hmm. uh, was it IMM, I, International Mining and Machinery, which was another company in which this uh, Emory Williams and Lee RuPaul have a pretty significant stake, and they sold it to Joy Global for also a lot of money. And and so so these these folks are there are folks out there saying you know you watch they're going to have to write that down too, so if if Joy Global has a problem then I think you know it's going to be hard to conclude that there was sort of we didn't know what was going the, on yeah yeah right now we're not there yet right. So – so, but it's very interesting to see that company has, has – you're going to probably, if you haven't already, you'll start noticing press about these guys because there are folks who are trying to, who are trying to talk down Joy Global now.
0: And when does Joy Global report? I don't know. We, we don't, I, I, we're not watching yeah. that closely enough. Okay.
2: Um, I mean, sorry. So wait, wait, there, there were – to... Sorry. I was just going to jump in. I mean w- one thing you were mentioning about this guy, uh, Louis De Leon, who was the vice president mm-hmm. of mining at Caterpillar. And he came from this other company and, and he'd already held talks with the guys at ERA about, you know, working together, possibly acquiring them. So you've got to remember, Caterpillar is a global company that sees China. It sees China market. It sees that it's not getting what it wants there. You've got these domestic companies here like Sani Global and Zoom Leon who are very good at making machinery. It's not as good as Caterpillar's but it's cheaper.
1: It's good enough for it's a lot of good
2: people. enough. They're making that machinery and Caterpillar are not getting what they want. Their sales globally have been going up, but they're only they're less than 3% of that sales in China. So you've got the headquarters telling the guys here, bring me deals. We've got to keep expanding. There is no no substitute. So they're under pressure. Or oh, well, there's incentives for them to bring in deals. Now, I suspect that they rushed this through. And that, you know, there was a sort of, uh, they call it deal destiny. You believe this is going to happen. So all these warning signs, all these things
1: that Bill talked about. They tended they, to ignore them. They,
2: they tend to ignore them. To, and, yeah. and, and, you know, they're supposed to be, che- this is a big corporation. Uh, absolutely. This is, there's meant to be you checks fall in and the balances, deal. right? You fall
1: in love with the deal and you keep finding reasons to keep it going. And you're so far in that, you know, you don't want to give up months of work. You know, one thing that's interesting is on the on the accounting, the, the um you know, they're going to, Caterpillar is a big company. They're going to do their due diligence. They're going to go and they're going to look at the books. Uh, Paul Gillis, who I'm sure a lot of listeners know, who, who's a professor at um, the Peking University's Guangha School of Management and has a great blog called the China Accounting Blog. He's written about this case. Yeah, he's and,
0: been on our show as well. Uh, he's
1: been on the show before. And he made the point, um, especially in light of the fact that the ERA was a, reverse, was a reverse listing in Hong Kong and was not using a tier one accounting firm, that – there, right there you, you should you should expect that's a red flag right more well, at least a yellow flag there's right. there, the, the, the risk the risk profile is much higher so these kinds of deals going forward if a multinational wants to make this kind of an acquisition they need to not just do the normal M&A due diligence they need to go in there and do a forensic basically do a fraud audit to actually go in there expecting to find and looking for fraud and that's a very different approach to accounting and so you end up you know I'll make two points one is unless you're looking for fraud it's it's can be hard to find it. Two, some of these frauds are incredibly sophisticated. I'll make an example. I'm not going to name names, but there was a company, a very high-profile U.S.-listed company, Chinese firm, was actually a straight-up IPO. It was not a reverse listing. Uh, It blew up in 2000. I think it was 2011. It was a a huge blow-up at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know one of the investors who was a top 10. His fund was a top 10 holding. They lost over $100 million. The year before, there had been rumors that there was fraud at this company and and one of the one of the earliest investors who's one of the you know one of the top funds in the world had was so concerned about the the rumors they hired an independent team of you know world class professional services firms to actually check out these rumors and see if they could find fraud they couldn't find anything well wow. right and then a year later so so it blew up if a year people later, you know right? if you if people want to cook the books you can you know you, you can there's some pretty creative people in the u s and there's some pretty creative people in china and you can you can make it very very hard to discover at some point you know at some point it gets so bad that you basically you know it all blows up, but hey if you 're an early investor, you can sell the company, you can take the company public and cash out greater fool yeah and then and then you know basically the the acquirers left let hold in the bag and yes, they can sue and they can try and call back the money but once you got the money, it's hard to get it back, yeah. especially depending on where its jurisdiction is in.
0: So, Simon, on your Ride the Tiger blog, you actually included a sort of a, a coda that was chopped for reasons of space from the Forbes piece on the whole Caterpillar debacle. Uh, in that that stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, you actually describe uh, your visit to the acquired company to see for yourself whether there was a company of substance there. Can you tell us what you saw?
2: Yeah, I mean, the circumstance was I spent, uh, you know, a week or so on the phone and emailing and trying to get as much information as possible on this. And I kept coming up against what what Bill just mentioned, which is that I I really think Caterpillar didn't really do their homework, that they rushed into this. Perhaps they didn't get enough time on the ground inspecting what they were buying. And I realized, well, am I doing the same thing? So I decided to get on a plane and go to Zhengzhou, just not expecting to see much, just to actually see that there was a factory at the end of the at the end of the line. Um, You know, it was the week before, uh, it was two weeks before Chunjie, so everyone was kind of winding down. We just spent our time hanging out with the workers at the local, you know, um, small restaurant and talking to them about what was going on inside. And they were describing how we were saying what happened when Caterpillar bought the company and what had happened since. And the firing of the the boss, of Boss Wang, the CEO, was a big deal for them. I mean, up until the point where Caterpillar came in and said you know, this guy is out, they had no idea what was going on. These were just low-level workers. How many workers are there? 4,000 there. I mean, it's a huge facility um, and quite modern. But, you know, (laughs) you've got to ask the question, like, did Caterpillar go around and kick the tires? Did they actually go and count the machines? I I talked to a lot of people for the story, people who had experience in corporate acquisitions, you know, uh, CEOs, former CEOs of multinational companies in China. And of course, they all knew the horror stories. They all knew what could go wrong. But they said, look, you know, your job is to find out as much as possible. I, I spoke to someone who acquired a uh, food company. And it, the audit involved counting chickens. I mean, mm-hmm. like literally cu- literally counting the chickens that you I mean, were buying. They,
1: they, they, they must have. Their dues in China. (laughs) I don't understand how the list is. You
0: should count your chickens before you hatch the deal.
1: Or at least before you send the check over, before you wire the money.
2: I mean, these, these are like huge machines they
1: sell. Yeah, right. these are, like yeah,
0: are $30,000 machines, right? I mean, and so the machinery long. we were talking about is for mining supports. I mean, it's for supports within, within tunnels, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, the reason why this is actually a hot industry to be in is because um, China's underground coal mines are horrendously dangerous, as we all know. Right. And one of the reasons they are is because they're, so me- they're not mechanized. And these machines are actually a hydraulic support which stops the roof from caving in when you're down there. So, you know, companies in China, which, you know, some years ago wouldn't have bothered with this, are now investing in that equipment. So it's a, you know, it's a good business to be in. I mean, this is the coal capital of the world. Right. So these are these are these big hulking machines that that, that you, you stick inside a mine, which to me also says that it should be fairly easy to figure out who's buying them and how many they're buying. I mean, again, it's it's a pretty easy business to get your head around in a way that trying to figure out what a software company does and, and you know money in, money right. out is, is tricky. I mean, it, look at HP. They got burned by this autonomy, this British software company, yeah. to the tune of no, know, I mean, fraud, fraud, billion. Dollars. Fraud is
1: not, is not a, like a Chinese uh, invention or, or China does not have exclusive on fraud. We've, we all know that. No, one question, though. So, so the, the Chinese partner, John Lee... He he was originally an official in the old Ministry of Mines, or so. Okay, so he knew. all... I mean, that was his.
2: Oh yeah, he he knows the industry. He okay. he was a state official. Um, you know, spent a year or two at uh, the North Dakota
1: School of Mining doing right. a master's degree. But
2: I mean, essentially, he brought the local know-how and I guess
1: the government relations into the deal. And, and and I think one of the things that Caterpillar probably has a big challenge with is, you know, they're gonna have a hard time if this asset they have in in, 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 in Zhengzhou and Hunan is you know, four thousand employees or thereabouts, but it's not worth much anymore. But they can't really fire those people. They're mm-hmm. a lot are they gonna have big GR problem, government relations issues, right, if they have to if they do mass layoffs. So what are they gonna do? Well the, the local government is quite concerned about that. I mean when they yeah. when
2: Caterpillar has been going down to investigate, you know, for months now and I have seen various reports about how they've met with the local officials who are, you know, urging them to carry on investing in, their, in in the city. So yeah, I mean this is they might walk away from it. I mean it's it could be more more trouble than it's worth, particularly once the management go and you've got to try to, you know, run the show and figure out where the money's gone.
0: So for those those of us who are watching to see how this plays out, what are the next uh a- you know, acts to be looking for? I mean, what what are the next things for us to be paying close attention to that'll signal how this plays out?
2: well the um the next one from the Casbiller side is um, on february twenty eighth they file their ten uh, k their annual report to mm-hmm. the stock exchange in in the u s and that will have much more detail we think about uh, about the write down and what the fraud is and then the next one after that, which is what bill mentioned, is that um, Williams and Lee agreed to take some of their money in cash and some of their money in loan notes, and these loan notes were basically linked to the profits so over the next year, over this, this year and next year, they receive the bulk of their money from Caterpillar, and the next payment is due in April. And right. it seems quite unlikely that Caterpillar is going to pay out. You, but they need to find a legal reason. You actually
0: cited for that. These, the, the fact that they agreed to take part of the payment in loan notes as evidence that that they you know, they were
2: operating in good faith. Right. Yeah, that's one interpretation. I mean, I, I, just, is,
1: I, I, would, I would, that's a possible interpretation. And uh, an equally plausible one is. When you when you've got a company that's got a problem, you know your deal. You want to get the deal done. You'll take what you can get, right? Right, and then hope you can stretch it out. I mean, there there you can certainly look at it from a more nefarious. I'm not I'm not saying that's what happened, but I'm just saying there there are there are multiple interpretations. I've lived here long enough that I tend to the darker side of things well, like, you probably are probably bad but... well if jeremy was here i'm sure this is the moment jeremy where be like, what? In. what the f is wrong with you? of course it's a fraud what's wrong? no just stop it now anyway, but Jeremy's sorry jeremy
0: here. <laughs> so what's emery williams doing now i mean has he suffered irreparable reputational damage or what? is he
1: in beijing still or is he in Hong Kong?
2: i believe he's in beijing okay uh he, he didn't want to speak to us or other media but i mean you know Let's say people close to his side. I have talked to. But
1: he has a PR. He's hired engage a PR firm, right?
2: He does have a financial PR firm, yeah. and I imagine he has uh, lawyers. And yeah. I, I believe those lawyers would probably be telling him right now to say nothing and right. and, and, and keep his you know keep quiet. Um, they they could well be a long litigious game to be played here. Well, uh, the, I mean, there, you know, just
0: to be fair to him. So, I mean, the, the 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 piece that you wrote quotes quite a number of people who are sort of eager to step up as his character. He's witness. a pillar of the community. Yeah, I yeah, mean, he's yeah.
1: been here and and. I mean, one of the things is, are there potential legal issues for for them in under Chinese law? I mean, is, is Caterpillar going to try and get the the executives they fired in China, are they going to try and f- find a way to press charges against them in, in Henan, do you know? Or?
2: Well, this is an interesting, interesting point, because um, uh, in, in other jurisdictions that would... Probably be pretty immediate, right? But I mean, in this case, you know, they uh, the, the authorities in Zhengzhou might think, well, these are Americans cheating Americans. You know, why do we need to get, to get involved here? <laughs> I mean, the uh, some of the Chinese press reporting has actually suggested that the uh, the Chinese management, the CEO Mr. Wang and his people, are just scapegoated. Scapegoated. Yeah, yeah right. that simply these are the these are the this is an American you know uh, skullduggery, Ooh. and we're getting the blame. And well, so- the, the
1: Economic Observer, which is you know a pretty reputable newspaper. They went so far and, and they had a long piece on this, they actually went so far to quote somebody saying that one of the Caterpillar um folks on the Caterpillar MA team was bribed was it bribed at a five star hotel in Zhengzhou, Right? <laughs> and you know that I mean that's a pretty serious allegation to make. I, I haven't seen anyone make that in the Western press. And they sort of
2: did you look into that at all? We,
1: we did, actually. Uh,
2: um, my assistant talked to the it's reporter. It's kind of strange. What
1: are they going to give them? Are going to yeah, give Yeah, right. To yes. make a deal like this, you need a bunch of suitcases. I mean, what are they going to give them in a five-star hotel? I wasn't too convinced by that. I mean, even if
2: you, even if we take it on face value, to 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 have one caterpillar person accepting, you know, a bribe doesn't really seal the deal. I mean, there's no. so many other things that need to happen that I don't think that in itself is. I mean, it's not like you're selling a car to someone. It's not. It's not that simple. It,
1: it's. I mean, again, it's not. Again, it's. Not, and certainly, I think you see this. In other You've seen this in other deals. I mean, there's not out of the realm of possibility that people are given inducements to help be the advocate internally. But to your point, that doesn't. Yeah, it's very. You know that one person but so, I mean clearly the the M&A guy for Caterpillar appears to have been scapegoated since he was he, he was separated from the company they claimed voluntarily the same day as they announced with the announcement of the write down mm-hmm. but even so you know, there's nobody in China I, I imagine who would be able to be able to give the full green light for this deal
2: I mean if just step back a minute what I find sort of fascinating is is that you know you do have Americans on both sides of the table here and if you put yourself in Caterpillar's shoes it's hard not to believe that they were somehow swayed by the fact that there was a you know all-American corporate well, well, guy also, on the other side. There
1: was also Lee, John Lee's son-in-law, who's the you know the, the the son of a very prominent billionaire. I don't know if they're American, but they're they're maybe they're they live in Hong Kong. And they run the big uh, logistics company. What's it called? Uh, uh, Crown. They Crown. Actually, right. right,
2: right. Re- relocation services for expats and other things. And,
1: and he, you know he you know this other thirty-something American guy married his. Daughter,
2: right. So, to, to so, 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 you, so if you're it's,
1: caterpillar. You're looking okay. at a, a pillar of the expat community in Beijing, and the son of a billionaire, longtime Asia resident with a very well-known company, as being major shareholders in this company. You're buying. You know that's going to give you some comfort.
2: Yeah. So in a way, we've moved on from, from the Mr. China days where there was, you know, Mr. Wu, Mr. Wang and whatever on the other side who you were doing business with. And the foreigners were, were, the, were the guys bringing, the, you know, the foreign know-how and the capital. It's evolved now. I mean, there's so many different aspects here of joint ventures and, and tie-ups. I mean, you know, that's also the story with all these massive blow-ups in, in, on the U.S. listed stocks as well, right? I mean, they often have foreign funds, foreign faces involved. It's no longer a simple matter of saying here is the Chinese side, here is the American side. I mean, this is mm-hmm. this is this is kind of interesting to me isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly part of what no, makes this interesting. To that point,
1: actually, it, I, I actually, if I'm looking at a Chinese company in the U.S. and you know, considering buying some of its shares or telling you know, talking to people about it, if it's a Chinese firm but it has a, a like an American or Caucasian CFO, I actually put that in the yellow flag category now because there are plenty <laughs> of competent. Chinese financial professionals, professionals who can be CFOs, who speak English, who know how to deal with Wall Street.
0: Are we thinking about long top here?
1: There are several companies where you end up with effectively you have sort of the the Caucasian beard who ends up you know basically <laughs> maybe beard. you know you know maybe maybe they maybe they all, they may very well be ignorant of the fraud, but they're effectively fronting the fraud to foreign investors.
0: The useful idiot.
1: So what
2: you're saying is is that having that uh, white face at the front to you is actually a a demerit rather than a merit because it suggests yeah because there
1: are plenty of qualified Chinese but the the reason you do that unless unless that person adds some really special value in sort of domain expertise but if it's just because we want a white face or a non Chinese face these days that's a I'm sure I actually I consider that a yellow flag. Very
0: interesting. I anyway, mean, this is a story that we're going to be continuing to follow. Thanks so much, Simon, for sharing the insight and then uh, telling us sort of, you know, what happened behind the scenes in your reporting. Uh, let's move on now to the section where we make our uh, recommendations for the week. Bill, do you have something that you'd like to recommend for us this week?
1: Sure. Two Two things. Um, first is actually it's still one of my it's on my top five all-time China books which is Mr. China by uh, Tim Tim Klissel. Klisseld, yes uh it's what now maybe 10 years old or 12 years old it's a story of a Simcoe even though it doesn't use that no. it doesn't actually say it but it's a brilliant book and he's a great writer it's and, very entertaining and it's yeah. very entertaining and sadly its stories actually still resonate today <laughs> and then the other thing is if you can you should watch House of Cards Netflix is Netflix's uh, first uh in-house produced series about uh Capitol Hill and... I, I devoured that whole thing in about... Took uh, me three days. Uh,
0: yeah, a 48-hour period for me um, to do 13 right. hours of television. That was And there is actually bad, a Chinese
1: but... angle to it. There, there is. You finished it, right? I did, I did. But yeah, there's yeah, a character right. who speaks surprisingly good right, Chinese. Right, right. Well,
0: <laughs> it was, it was. I, I, that was weird. I mean, he got his tones right and everything. It was really bizarre. If it's anyway.
1: It's towards the end, but it's. A, it's but a, that was wor- one of the more watching. implausible things. I mean, why? Oh, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll, I will will
0: i will not spoil it. I'll but spoil yeah, it. Yeah, that was that was really very surprising. I mean, he actually got the tones right.
1: That yeah, was, it was interesting.
0: Right, right, right. Simon, so, mean, okay, so yeah, House of Cards, I, I hardly endorse that. I had a great time. Uh, Kevin Spacey was terrific. Actually, there's a China connection there. It was pointed out to me that uh, for those of you who live in Beijing and, and were able to see Richard III, when uh, Kevin Spacey played it, he did a lot of those, you know, asides. He, he broke the fourth wall and he speaks directly to the audience. And in, in interviews, uh, Kathleen McLaughlin, who's been a frequent guest on the show, she was the one who, uh, who pointed this out to me, that in interviews he, he talked about having borrowed from, from his portrayal of Richard III uh, to, to, uh, to do this character in, in uh, House of Cards. Simon, what do you have for us this, this week?
2: Uh, I'm going to go with another visual one, which is a documentary I saw recently. I guess it's not that new. Called "Waiting for Sugarman." Uh, I don't know if this is, have you heard of this before. It's it's a fantastic story about uh, a rather obscure American musician. I'm going
0: to stop you right there. We actually did a long segment on on searching for Sugarman. It's called "Searching for Sugarman." Uh, yeah, uh, people can, can we, cut we, we, we can cut, cut go back. Uh, we we actually talked about that with Jeremy because he's South African. Okay. So Simon, what do you have for this? for us this week.
2: I'm going I'm to recommend a documentary called Somewhere Between that I watched uh, over over the holiday. It's, um, it tra- takes um, four uh, Chinese girls who've been adopted by Americans and they're now teenagers. And it basically looks at their lives in America now and how they are intrigued or pulled back to China to find out where they came from, who were their birth parents and all these questions. I mean, it doesn't always work, but there's one family that they do follow and one girl in particular who goes to Anhui and puts up pictures uh, of, you know, of of the of her photo and some information about where she was born. And they actually do trace the family. They do DNA testing and everything. And just for that bit alone, to see that it is really quite moving and interesting. And you realize there's just a huge wave of these people growing up.
0: Yeah, there sure are. I mean, I remember years ago when this was first starting, I would get inquiries from people who had adopted Chinese children. And they would ask me things like, what what stories should i tell to them uh what chinese fairy tales should i, I, I and my advice was always uh, m- maybe i was wrong but i would i would say you know I, I think that that you should if anything i mean this is this is you're adopting them into america you should not emphasize their 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 otherness that you should treat them no differently as you would a white child or uh, your or your your own uh in at such point that she, or he, in, in in this case, it's always she, right, uh, decides that she's interested in uh, in her own ethnic origins, then encourage her. But I don't think that you should... Uh, I mean, do you, how do you feel on, on that issue? Do you think that it, I was giving
2: bad advice there? I mean, I think the assimilation is going to happen. I mean, the whole thing of America is that, you know, you become American by growing up there. So the, the children are growing up American, but, you know, they they're always going to have questions. And I, and I think, you know, parents handle this differently. I mean, I don't have adopted children, but I know people who, who do. And, you know, you have a choice about whether to be really upfront and try and throw the stuff out there, or whether to just, you know, wait for the child to, to to come across it in their own way. And some children will never be curious. I, I know I know people who, who are adopted, who grew up in, you know, Europe or the West who have got no interest in going back to find their roots. But there's others, I mean, you know, who cannot just put this question down. And, and there's a particular question here, which is, if you are a, a, a girl um, adopted in China since you know, in the 80s or 90s, you have been abandoned mm-hmm. by someone. Someone mm-hmm. has given you up because you weren't a boy. I mean, that's not always the explanation, but that's, that's got to be a large part of it. And, and that, that's something that's hard to shake. I mean, in this film, you see it. You see for, for, for one particular girl who's this fantastic sort of you know super confident teenager at Exeter studying at Exeter on the rowing team you know the 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 high the high achieving asian american but she's haunted by this this idea and, and i i found that that really fascinating yeah that that's sounds yeah. terrific yeah. so what's it called again somewhere in between uh,
1: Now, no, to you I, I mean i i wouldn't i don't know if you gave people bad, bad advice or not i i tend not to give parental advice cuz I'm too busy screwing up my own kids. <laughs> 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 and by the way, you're about to be a father, correct? April, two months Get ago. Get sleep. Yeah,
0: <laughs> sleep all you can. Yeah. That's my, my best advice. Thanks. I'm going to make an, a non-China recommendation, but I, I suppose uh, I, I have a sort of China longing. Uh, Simon and I had lunch the other day, and one and we, we as we always do, we talk about the books we're reading. And, and I had just finished recently uh, Catherine Boo's terrific book, uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, Life, Death, and Hope in a Mumbai... Under City. Simon. You'd also read it. I don't know, Bill. Have you had a chance to read I, that yet?
1: Chapter two.
0: Oh, it's it's it, it's keep it's going. Terrific. Yeah, keep going. I mean, it, it's it. Not only is the writing just splendid, but just uh, the the reporting. I mean, the, I mean, we had a long conversation about this, and maybe we can sort of rehash what we were talking about. Did you have problems with with uh, her writing herself sort of
2: entirely out of out of it out of the narrative? Yeah, there were bits where you you found yourself thinking, okay, so did you witness this poor person suffering this situation, lying on the street or whatever it was, and just just stood there taking yeah, out? legs
0: run over by a, a bus? <sighs> or, or, or did did you were you actually on uh, this precipice with this guy as he, he he you know risked his life to gather a few scraps of plastic? Were you you know hiding uh, with your protagonist? as he escapes the police by hiding on, on, uh, atop a rubble pile.
2: I just found myself thinking, well, what did she do when she wanted to go to the toilet? But, I mean, that's you know, just just me.
0: <laughs> but, uh, I mean, no, she, she wasn't living there. In, in, she, in, was spending she was spending an awful lot of time, time reporting there. It. And I guess the, the, what, what I'm wondering is, where is the China version of this? Why hasn't somebody done this style of reporting and written this style of book? Do you – maybe I'm missing one. Maybe there is something out there. Uh, I mean, this is – anyone aware of somebody who has immersed themselves in sort of an anthropological way?
2: I I think I brought this one up. I guess Factory Girls uh, by uh, Leslie Leslie Chang in as much as the following the the girls, the, the women who are working in Shenzhen and going back to the village. I mean, I've seen people doing that, the sort of migrant go back to the village. Where did people come from? I mean, there's been documentaries along those lines as well. I can't think of a book which took the same approach as this, though, which was so micro, and, and yet there was just incredible drama. I mean, it was over. I think it was over the space of four years. You're
0: right, four years. Um, the drama is just—it's. It, I mean, it, you couldn't have dreamt it up better. I mean, it, it's, it's legal such a a vehicle oh. to take you into yeah all the the Byzantine intricacies of, and the corruption in, in the legal system. You had you know religion and you had caste, you had you know gender issues. You had all everything was. I mean, it was just. I mean, An unbelievably well-chosen moment.
2: Yeah. I mean, you, I suppose one obstacle in China would be the official side of things, would be penetrating beyond the police station, the courts, and, how, and the politics of, of how these people's lives, you know, they're the sort of relatively powerless people, how they try to find their way through the system. I mean, the advantage in India is that you can actually be inside the system looking out as well as outside looking in. Um, that's a huge obstacle here. Were you to follow the story
1: along this? Well, did Melissa Chan do a little bit of that when she was at Al Jazeera, where she was sort of following some petitioners and uh, right? That, but I'm, I'm talking about sustained,
0: like right. four year kind of immersion in in in. Anyway, uh, for for anyone who's thinking about uh, <laughs> undertaking something like this, it's if <laughs> you've got four nothing. years, it's well, you've well, I mean, four isn't years. Isn't that a
1: little bit of what Peter Hastler did in Rivertown? Where I mean, well, I mean, he, he was there it for wasn't, another like, reason, class, I mean, but he. He gave a very well. He, you know, he rich was there in the Peace of, a, Corps. of, a, of right. town at a moment in time that he actually. The latest National Geographic has his return right and how you know that moment in time is gone. It's a very it's a very interesting. It's article. a very good ah, piece, right? And he's best. of course yeah. such an outstanding writer. I've not read that yet. It's worth. It's the latest National. It's online. Uh, his what is it? Just return to Rivertown? Right. Or it's or called it's, Return to Rivertown. It's a very Let's very good piece. Make
0: sure to put a link to that on the site as well. Well,
2: guys, thanks so much.
0: That was a, a great conversation thanks simon your 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 virgin uh experience here on Seneca. I hope it was an enjoyable one.
2: yeah, I've been a listener for for a while, and it's a it's a pleasure to be on the show
0: great, well, we will certainly have you back bill thanks and uh I hope that now that you know, <coughs> like maybe they okay, so maybe not we'll see Sorry. <laughs> cat allergies again <sighs> but uh We'll, we'll hopefully get Dave to kill a cat. No, I
1: need to just sort of eat the hot pot to build up the immunity.
0: <laughs> okay, guys. So we will see you next. Hey, one quick plug. Uh, the two Beijing literary, literary festivals are about to get underway, both the Capital Literature Festi- Literary Festival uh, at Capital M and the Bookworms Literary Festival. We are very blessed here in the city. Uh, a number of people who are guests on Seneca, as well as, as, as me uh, as one of the hosts, Uh, We'll be doing a lot of moderating of panels, some really interesting stuff. Uh, We will be uh, recording a number of the sessions, at least from the Capitol Literary Festival and uh, putting it on air uh, here on the Seneca Podcast. Anyway, we'll talk to you next week. Take care.